Uh, he set out on a journey uh, from his homeland in Ur of the Chaldees. I am followed wherever the Lord led for the most part. Sometimes he got off track, uh, but he always kept coming back to follow the Lord. Uh, it's, it's a lengthy story of, of a life of trust and faithfulness. And today we come to the climax of that story and, and Abraham's ultimate test. I'm sure you've seen some of these sorts of uh, internet memes. I think we have a picture there. A uh, picture of a rustic cabin. There it is, in the woods. With the caption something like this, right? You have to stay in this cabin for one month. No internet, no cell phone, no television for $100,000. Would you do it? And I'm like, I'll do it for free. You don't need to give me $100,000. Just where is that cabin? I will stay there. Where do I sign up? Or another, another one I've seen which we don't have a visual for is, uh, you know, you can have this cabin as your summer home, but the thing you give up is you can never watch football again. Depending on how things go this afternoon, maybe we don't want to watch any more football. I don't know. Uh, and, I'm kind of, and then the, other, the, the, the loophole part of me is going, can I still listen to football on the radio, though? I don't know. Kind of trying to get through there a little bit, right? Maybe cheating the system. But, you know, here's the thing. Giving up something that's relatively trivial, trivial and, like, let's be honest, 99% of what goes on on, like, social media and the internet in general, pretty trivial, really. Uh, doing that for what amounts to a sizable reward is not truly that hard if it comes right down to it. This is basically how we make our way through life, right? We always have decisions to make, and one of the criteria that we mostly use for making decisions is, you know, is this going to be a better deal than that? Is this trade-off going to be worth it? Is giving up this thing for this thing going to be worth it? Am I, am I, am I trading up, essentially? Is my trade-off a trade-up? What about if it's a, a trade down? Or what if it's no trade at all? What if it's just give stuff up? That's where we find Abraham at the end of his story and at the end of our series today. He's given the ultimate test. At least we know that it's a test. Scripture tells us, and we're going to read it in just a minute, that it's a test. Abraham doesn't know that. As far as he knows, he's being asked to trade away everything that he's received from the Lord so far. And he's made no promises that he's going to receive anything in return for the sacrifice he's supposed to make. This is going to be a very challenging story, both because of the subject matter and because of how much it doesn't tell us. And at the same time, Genesis 22 it's one of those great passages of the Old Testament, which has just such amazing theological ties with the New Testament, the gospel, and the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's have a look. I would invite you to stand for the reading of our sermon passage today. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, 
Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to that day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So last week we looked at the second time the Lord promised that Abraham and Sarah were going to finally have the son that he had promised them, even though they were both now quite old. And the Lord fulfilled his word, and and Sarah became pregnant and had a baby, which they named Isaac. Finally, finally, the Lord's promise has come true. The promise they have waited for and prayed for all those years. Finally, God's word fulfilled. Praise the Lord. But then, this chapter happens. Again, the chapter begins by filling us in on some details that Abraham isn't told right up front. 
This is a test. It's kind of the same as the setup to the book of Job, right? The reader is let in on a, a lot of important details that the, the actors, the characters in the story don't know about. We're tipped off that this is a test. Abraham doesn't know that. For all he knows, this is just what he's being asked to do. It just seems to Abraham like he's being called to intense suffering. Many of us who are familiar with this story, we know how it turns out. Nevertheless, as we read it, it's not a bad idea to kind of keep both of these perspectives as active as we can. Abraham's perspective, limited as it is, and our perspective, probably quite familiar with what's going to happen. And this story, it takes us right back to the very beginning of where we met Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, when he was still a pagan, living in Ur of the Chaldeans, and the Lord called to him. And if you remember what God's call was, it was to leave behind his, his heritage. It's stated in a, in a threefold pattern. Leave behind your country or your land. Leave behind your, your clan or your kin or your extended family. And then leave behind your father's house, your immediate family. The demands are all kind of saying the same thing, but in each case, they get more pointed, more specific, and more difficult. The same thing happens here. Give up your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It's the same threefold pattern, moving more and more specifically. In this series, we've seen a number of firsts as well. If you've been with us for this, this series of messages, uh, there was the first time the Lord calls someone to make a sacrifice. If you remember back in, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, when the Lord said to Abraham, kill some animals, we're going to make a covenant. Uh, the first time someone is visited by the angel of the Lord, if you remember, if you remember Hagar running away. And in that same story, the first time Someone gives a name pertaining to God. Here we have another very important first in the Bible. This is the first time that the word love is used in Scripture. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac. Also back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is commanded to go to an unknown land that the Lord will show him. Here he is commanded to offer Isaac on an unknown mountain, which the Lord will show him. Even at this stage, with his one final journey to make, Abraham still has to walk by faith and not by sight. But the command this time. On the one hand, we are... We are properly horrified at the notion of human sacrifice. But it's hard to say exactly how common the, the practice would have been in ancient times. It likely varied from culture to culture and would have varied even within a given culture in different time periods, of course. It seems, however, that this would have likely been a promise that was, that was known to Abraham, possibly from his days as a pagan in Ur of the Chaldeans and possibly from the practices of his pagan neighbors, in the land of Canaan. So this wouldn't have been something that he had never heard of or had no context for. 
He, he was not likely horrified at, at the concept of child sacrifice per se in the same fashion that we are. But on the other hand, this is still a heartbreaking thing for the Lord to ask. And, and what this amounts to, if you can wrap your head around it, it amounts to God completely turning the tables on everything that Abraham has come to believe about him in all these years of walking with him. So far, what has God's message to Abraham been? It's been the same thing over and over and over again. Abraham, I am going to give you descendants. Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Time after time, appearance after appearance, the Lord graciously repeats and reaffirms and recommits himself to these promises. Whenever Abraham doubts, whenever even Abraham gets off track, the promises are always the same promises. And they are always promises that the Lord will give. Remember back, if you can, where we've been. Remember Genesis 15, which I just mentioned a moment ago, where the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Remember how that went? Remember how the Lord guaranteed the promises, right? Abraham sacrificed the animals. He butchered the animals and and carved them in half and laid the pieces out one over against the other. And remember how the Lord alone walked between the pieces of the slaughtered animals. And remember how that meant that the Lord was not just assuring the covenant promises, but also taking upon himself The covenant curses, right? Remember that. This is a total reversal. This is a total reversal of everything we've had up until now. There's a moment in, if you're familiar with with the Chronicles of Narnia and and those stories by C.S. Lewis, in the the final book, The Last Battle, uh, there's rumors going around the land of Narnia that Aslan the great lion and ruler over all Narnia has come back, but things are not at all like anyone expected. Tyrion, the last king of Narnia, laments, would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? It is as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun. And I'm sure this is how Abraham must have felt as the Lord delivered this message. How... How could God ask a thing like this? All along it's been, I'm going to give you these things, Abraham. He showed up time and time again and said, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you, Abraham. Why would he now, that the promise is fulfilled, do something so out of character? Why would God undo all the promises that he's been fulfilling up until now? What's going to become of them? I think the most staggering thing of all, though, is that Abraham actually decided to go through with it. He gets up early the next morning. He starts to make preparations. He splits some firewood. He gets his servants together. He saddles up the donkey. He collects Isaac. And so they depart. He says it's a three-day journey from Beersheba to Moriah. Think of that. When the Lord called Abraham... To be circumcised, as unpleasant as that might have been, what did he do? Got it over with that very day. Just got her done. He's not going to be able to even do that this time. It's a three-day trip. Walking together, 
camping outside, plenty of time to think, plenty of time to change his mind, plenty of time to rationalize some kind of a plan B. Well, maybe, maybe we could do this instead. Maybe I just won't go through with it. As scripture frequently is, it is silent on what's going on in Abraham's mind. He's just, we don't know. Has he just resolutely made up his mind? Is he silently having that, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me kind of a conversation with God? We just don't know. We're only, we're only given that one line of dialogue back and forth about where's the lamb and the Lord himself will provide. However, when it comes to it, he doesn't waver. When he sees the mountain the Lord is directing him to, he leaves the, the servants behind with the donkey and sets off all alone with Isaac. Now, why leave the donkey behind? Well, I think it, he's leaving behind the last opportunity to come up with a plan B. Maybe his plan B could have been, I'll sacrifice the animal instead of my son. So he leaves it behind, and they go on alone. A little later on, as they're trekking up the mountain, Isaac asks, My father, there's wood and fire for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham responds, God himself will provide. You know, that kind of echoes the comment that he made as, as he left the servants, too. That we will we'll worship and then we'll come back. And we, we, we can't quite get inside Abraham's head. Is, is, he trying to, is he trying to deflect what's happening? Is he just trying to put it out of his mind and not think about it? And we don't know, we don't know how much is going on with Isaac either, right? Does he believe him? So much we don't know, right? Does Abraham seriously, sincerely believe that the Lord is going to make a way out of this? Hebrews 11 says that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and would do so if it came to that. There's no mention of that in the text here, though. And in any case, when it does come down to it, we, we don't even know what happened there. Does, does Isaac... Submit to this willingly? Is there a struggle? I mean, Abraham's pretty old by this time. Um, it just says that Abraham bound him. And we're left with our imaginations as to whether that was more ceremonial, whether that was actual restraint. In the end, though, Abraham is willing to go through with it. With Isaac laying there on the altar, he, he pulls out his knife. You can see him there, can't you? Heart pounding, holding the knife, hands probably shaking, taking that last deep breath. And then, Abraham, Abraham, don't kill him. It was all a test. I know you fear God because you have not withheld your son your only son. And then, many of you who know the story, well, you'll remember, there's the ram caught in its horns in some bushes, and, and Abraham catches it and, and kills it and offers it as a burnt offering instead. And, and he names the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. Literally, it's actually the Lord sees, or we might say the Lord will see to it. And then the narrator mentions that this in initial name stuck, and that people still say, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
It's interesting, isn't it? All the way along, we identify with Abraham and we try to, we try to get inside his head a little bit and we ask ourselves, how, how could he go through with this? How could he obey given what he was asked? We think about the theme of testing or we think about God asking him and maybe asking us to surrender certain things. On the one hand, that's natural enough. That's kind of how we're wired to think. And the Bible does speak to those themes, of course. On the other, though, I don't think that's actually the real heart of the story. The location, after all, gets the name, the Lord will provide. Abraham doesn't call it, Abraham obeyed. Or even, Abraham was tested. But he calls it, the Lord provides. This passage, and and really the whole narrative of Abraham's life, now wraps up in these final verses with a restatement of God's promises to him. There are not a lot of places in Scripture where God is said to swear. These moments are reserved for the, the high points in God's dealings with people when he wants to make very certain that his promises are clear and established. But what we have here is a, is a restatement of what God had originally promised. As I've been saying all along here, this has is, this is, this is come full circle, right? From Genesis chapter 12 at the beginning of Abraham's story down to Genesis 22 at the end. Back in Genesis 12, I've mentioned it, but I'll just read it. God promises him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And here we have, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The words are different. and There are some different emphases, but the core of it is still there. Descendants, nationhood, land, and being a future blessing to all the peoples of the world. Once again, Abraham approaches this final climactic moment with the Lord certain it would seem that this time he's going to have to be the one that provides, right? Up until now, he's, he's thought that way perhaps and, and at every turn, at every occasion, the Lord keeps on providing. He approaches this one though and can see no way out. This is going to be the time when he's going to have to pay up as it were. He's going to have to provide. He's going to have to do the thing that will keep the covenant going, even though it seems to be a thing that will bring the whole thing crashing down. He goes into it certain that he's going to have to accomplish or achieve or maintain whatever's going on with God. And once again, though, certain as he might have been, When he gets there, he finds out that it is not the case. The Lord provides. Once again, and climactically so, Abraham benefits from a sacrifice that he did not have to make.
I don't think we have to look very hard to see how this story points beyond itself. Abraham's words that God himself would provide the lamb could not have been more true. On that day, the Lord provided an alternative, a substitute, so that Abraham didn't have to make the sacrifice and and Isaac didn't have to be the sacrifice for the sake of God's covenant promises. Abraham's words came true that day when he answered the question that his son asked him. But of course, Abraham's words that the Lord would provide the lamb for a sacrifice came true on a day far into the future. On that day, another only beloved son shouldered the wood that was to be the instrument of his sacrifice. On that day, if the other mentions of Mount Moriah in Scripture are taken at face value, that only son walked on the very same path. There are some incredible parallels here between this story and the story of Jesus, our Savior. But there are also some striking differences. On that day, as Jesus went to the cross, there was no voice from heaven delivering him at the last moment. On that day, the sky was black and heaven was silent. There was no, Abraham, Abraham, don't kill him. There was only, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On that day, there was no substitute. On that day, the beloved son was the Lord's provision. He was the lamb. However, also on that day, the Lord's promise at the end of this chapter to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's descendants came true. I think that often, like Abraham, we approach our lives of faith as things we must do. And it's not that obedience doesn't matter. It does. In this passage, even, the Lord highlights Abraham's obedience. He says as much. All the nations of the world will be blessed because you obeyed. He makes a big deal of Abraham's obedience, in fact. We spent a number of weeks walking with Abraham and seeing how he obeyed and how he didn't obey and how that went for him. But wherever that story went, it was always contained within the larger story of God's unfailing love and faithfulness to Abraham. That is, whatever Abraham did, even when he got it wrong, and he got it wrong spectacularly, a couple of times, the Lord still seemed determined to bless him every single time. Even perhaps more remarkably, it seems that whenever it would seem most appropriate and even most certain that Abraham needed to do something for God, it always seemed to go in the opposite direction. God would do something for him instead. seems only only fitting then that we conclude today by celebrating communion together.
And we come from, from a lot of different backgrounds here and, and different ways of partaking in the Lord's Supper. Today, we're going to have people that will serve communion from the front. And I would invite you, as you're ready, to come forward to receive. And in so doing, what we're doing is we're walking in the footsteps of our father Abraham. He went on a journey. It took him three days. It, it won't take you three days. But it, it, still, it still follows the same pattern. Leaving where you are. Coming forward to receive. And when you do, you receive from a sacrifice that you did not have to make yourself.